0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to a virtual VMHC lecture. This, we don't do many of these these days, but uh, uh, considering where our guest speaker today is, across the pond, um, she couldn't be here in person, but uh, we're very excited to be uh, have Misha Ewan joining us in just a minute. Uh, I'm Adam Scher, I'm the Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions At the VMHC, um, the VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We'd like to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Also like to give uh, a special thank you uh, to the Society of Colonial Wars in the Commonwealth of Virginia who are sponsoring today's program. So before we bring uh, Misha on, um, I'd like to make you aware of just a few upcoming events that you can mark your calendars for On June 24 at 6 p.m., we will be hosting the HBCU Scholars Fellow Lecture featuring Derek Lanois from Norfolk State University uh, who will be talking about Prince Hall Freemasonry, the oldest African-American institution in the country. That is a free program, but we do request that you register in advance. On June 29th at noon, uh, the John Marshall Center will be hosting uh, a webinar uh, on Marbury to Brown judicial review, uh, so that will be a virtual program. On July 1st, uh, here at the VMHC at 10.30 a.m., uh, that is a Saturday, I believe, uh, we will have our Collections Up Close program um, on the history of Civil War medicine, and that will be an opportunity. For you to see items from the collection and then finally on july 4th uh, at ten thirty a.m we will have our naturalization ceremony i think we've got about 75 uh, attendees who are going to become u.s citizens so it's a special opportunity for you to join with them as uh, we make them american citizens a very exciting moment that is a free program uh, and after the program uh, we'll have music uh, face painting Uh, Some birthday cake in honor of uh, July 4th, uh, and the galleries will be open 10 to 5. So for today's program, we're very happy to have Misha Ewan with us, uh, who will be talking about her latest book, The Virginia Venture, American Colonization and English Society, 1580 to 1660. In ways that have largely been overlooked, English citizens supported and sometimes undermined the colonization of America. In this lecture, Misha will discuss her research across England and how this chapter in American history has had lasting consequences for society both at home in England and in the New World. Misha Ewan is a lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Bristol. She's held fellowships at Yale, the Huntington Library, and the Folger Shakespeare Library, and has made several TV appearances, as well as radio appearances, including inside the Tower of London. The Virginia Venture, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press last year, is her first book, and we're very pleased to have Misha with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. So um, first of all, I just want to say thank you to Graham, who is organizing this behind the scenes, and also um, thank you, Adam, for that wonderful introduction. And of course, the museum for hosting this event. Um, It's lovely to be presenting this research um, to the community in Virginia, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion afterwards. Okay. In September 2018, I went on a sort of pilgrimage for my research to a church in West London. St. Mary's Acton is right on the High Street and the present building was completed in the mid 19th century, um, the one that you can see here, although the church itself dates back to the 13th century. I had come to see the memorial of a woman named Lady Catherine Conway, who died in 1637. Wall mounted, this memorial has remained in situ for nearly 400 years, even surviving an assault by roundhead soldiers in 1642. And I was interested in Catherine Conway because she was one of the first women to invest in the Virginia Company when she bought shares in 1609. This year, she was just one of two women to do so. And this was the year that the company's second charter um, was um, published, opening up subscription to a much broader public of English citizens for the first time. Up until this point, the company which received its charter from James I in 1606 had been sustained financially and politically by a much smaller elite council of men in London, made up of merchants, nobles and statesmen such as William Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury, John Popham, who was the Lord Chief Justice, as well as the young um, Prince of Wales, Henry. When I visited St Mary's in 2018, I'd already spent several years thinking about Catherine and the other women who adventured their purses in the company. I was interested in their backgrounds, what could be understood about their motivations and the impact that they had on the colonial project. Increasingly, though, I was also becoming concerned with questions about where the early modern colonial fabric of society could still be discerned in the present, and what illuminating these connections to colonial history in Virginia could ultimately tell us about how colonisation unfolded then, but the ways in which it has continued to impact British society today. The memorial hangs in the porch of the church high upon the right-hand side as you enter. When I visited, it was dimly lit by uh, quite an old lamp, um, and it's kind of impossible now to be able to read the text, but fortunately there's this late 19th century illustration and transcription of the tablet. The memorial describes Catherine as being the second wife of Edward Conway, who was sometimes secretary of state and a Privy Councillor, and it details Catherine's charitable giving to the Dutch church, the grocer's company, and also Christ's Hospital, and another parish church, St. Dunstan's in the East. It tells us a little bit about Catherine's background. So she was actually born Catherine Huberblock around 1565 to Dutch parents, Giles and Catherine, who were from Ghent and Flanders, respectively. And this family had fled religious unrest in the Low Countries and settled in London during the reign of Edward VI. Giles was an elder of the Dutch church, Austin Friars, and this was a connection that Catherine maintained throughout her own lifetime. Coming from a merchant background, first she married John West, who was a freeman of the grocer's company. And when he died in 1612, she married another grocer named Richard Fust. And this was before she then married um, Edward Conway in 1614, bringing a huge fortune rumoured to be five or six thousand pounds to the marriage. But it was during her first marriage to John West that she invested twenty five pounds in the Virginia Company under the name of Catherine. Why am I telling you all this? For me, Catherine is a really useful entry point into understanding the motivations behind the people that invested in the Virginia Company, both the religious unrest in Europe at this time, which motivated them to want to expand Protestantism in the New World, but also where this money came from that allowed them to invest. Many of the investors like Catherine were also from merchant backgrounds. What I didn't expect to find when I was in this church, though, was an additional tablet dedicated to Conway and another woman named Sarah Crail, who died in 1730. This tablet was inscribed on the above shelf, is placed every Sunday, bread for the sick and poor to be distributed after the service, with the date 1865, and a further note that in 1900, the fund was placed at the almshouse as well. A bit more digging revealed that the money that Conway had first dedicated in 1637 was still being used as late as 1980 to supply funds for apprenticeships and nursing within the parish of Acton. And it's from this vantage point of Conway's Memorial, which may seem like a strange place to begin, that I want to open up my talk with you today, because it raises several of the important issues with which my book, The Virginia Venture, is concerned. And I have a copy here. It's um Penn have done a really beautiful job on it. So some of the questions that I wanted to think about with my book was who was involved with the colonial project in England and how were they involved? How does examining their participation in empire building challenge, taking them from the vantage point of England rather than Jamestown, how we have usually understood and thought about colonisation in Virginia? How does examining women's involvement allow us to see some of the more intimate ties and practices which made colonization possible? And women like Catherine have obviously received very little attention in studies of colonization in Virginia and the Virginia Company. However, Catherine does reveal the very varied ways and important ways that women were connected with the project of colonization. As well as investing in the Virginia Company, Catherine Conway was also allegedly involved in a scheme to defraud the company's lotteries. And in the years following the decline of the Virginia Company, she corresponded about colonisation in Newfoundland with two of her business associates and shortly after her husband Edward invested in the Guyana Company. In her widowhood, Catherine benefited financially from plantation in Ireland, receiving income from estates held there by her deceased husband. So she also helps to illuminate the very diverse and global interest of investors in overseas trade and colonisation at this time. Women like Catherine Conway, their participation in colonisation in Virginia can be seen on a spectrum from what we might think of as more passing or fleeting interest to much deeper active engagement. But one of the things that I argue in my book is that it's important to capture the whole spectrum and variety of people's engagement with the colonial project in order to understand how people in English society, whether they were rich or poor, invested in colonial projects in Virginia and elsewhere. And I apologize there about my dog barking in the background. And this approach that I adopt in the book forces us to to consider colonization from the bottom up as well as the top down and consider the ways that ideas about colonization, attitudes towards colonization really trickled out into English society, involving citizens right across the social spectrum. A second concern in the book is how colonization in Virginia and English colonization more broadly intertwined with domestic concerns such as um, issues around charity and poor relief, people's rights, and also the economy. So taking just one example, Catherine's memorial speaks to the material connections between English colonization on the one hand and investment in colonial projects and charity and poor relief on the other. So her legacies included money that was given to the parish poor, poor prisoners, Um, the poor widows of um, Company Freeman and her memorial ends with this inscription that the poor who did thy life with prayers befriend and on thy funeral hearse in tears attend show their devotion still and send on high their praises for thy blessed charity may thy example others teach to give that when they die their fame like thine may live Catherine's giving um, in this way was not exceptional, particularly for someone like her, who was from the merchant community. But throughout the book, one of the things that I do is explore how the Virginia Company leveraged these concerns about poverty, about under unemployment, and about vagrancy in England to increase its capital through investment and donations and also how these concerns help to smooth the way for practices such as forced transportation of prisoners and poor children to supply the colony with its labour force. People like Catherine Conway engage with these practices through making donations and through supporting the company sometimes in very practical ways such as forced transportation and the evidence that we have suggests that these concerns weighed very heavily on their minds and also on the public consciousness more broadly, and that these concerns were key to leveraging the support that the company needed from multiple, often overlapping constituencies, such as parish churches and livery companies across early modern England. A third concern that I engage with throughout the book is What were some of the impacts that colonisation in England, sorry, colonisation in Virginia had on English society? So different chapters in the book take up this theme, including tracing the material samples. So things like corn and tobacco and sassafras, which colonists sent home um, to their patrons and to fellow investors of the Virginia Company. The ways that these new colonial goods kind of shaped the fabric of English society. I also look at the Virginia Company lotteries, which travelled from town to town across England, from Wales, Bristol and Gloucestershire in the southwest through to Warwick in the Midlands and Manchester and Chester in the northwest. Leaving behind many different kinds of legacies that are not always easy to discern nowadays. Um, but things like civic loans, which were left behind by the Virginia Company to distribute amongst Um, poor burgesses who had fallen on hard times, so citizens in trades who perhaps needed a loan in order to kind of rejuvenate their business. But the company also left behind gifts like a gilt cup um, for communion and printed books which wound their ways into local libraries. So one of the things I'm interested in is is kind of thinking about these, these legacies, if you like, of colonization in Virginia and the impact that they've had on local English history and for me this memorial tablet which still survives today is is a really kind of neat example of that. One of the things that I want to do in my book is kind of take this analysis down a level as well. So whilst my book does focus on elite people like Conway, who you know was from this merchant background, but then married into the aristocracy, but also people who were very ordinary as well. And the poor labouring sort and the kinds of interactions and encounters that they had with colonisation. And of course, during the time that I was researching and completing this book, These conversations about the legacies of colonialism on British society have really intensified, um, both in terms of scrutiny of particular individuals, but also institutions and our national monuments as well. And I think it's fair to say that most of our attention has focused on more prominent examples. So institutions like the Bank of England, the Royal Family and notable individuals like Edward Colston, for example. But for me, it's also important that we cast a much wider net when we're thinking about these issues and two memorials in St. Mary's Acton, the one dedicated to Catherine Conway and another dedicated to a woman named Anne Southwell, remind us just how deeply and widely these connections to colonial history really ran in early modern England. Anne Southwell was Catherine Conway's neighbour in Acton, and she had moved there in 1631 with her second husband, a man named Captain Henry Sibthorpe, Sibthorpe, after nearly three decades living in the Munster plantation in Ireland. Southwell's first husband had acquired land there from Sir Walter Raleigh in 1598, And we know from an inventory of Anne's goods that when she moved to Acton, um, she owned numerous books concerned with travel literature and um, American colonisation. So for me, it's really tempting to wonder what Southwell and Conway may have discussed in the years that they shared this parish church. And it also makes me think about what other imperial stories are lying in wait in our churches, in our cities in England, if we bother to pay a bit more attention to women as well as men and the labouring poor as well as the elite. And obviously it's really interesting for me that I have come to this history from the vantage point of England and how that's really shaped the way that I understand this, this early chapter in Virginia's history as well, and and how our approaches, the way that we think about this history may differ. So I'm really looking forward to your um, questions and discussion later. So of course we are used to thinking um, about how English colonists encountered America, both its environment and the indigenous population, and how the indigenous population in turn responded to settlers We've thought about crossings and arrivals, the ways in which they sought to build new communities and transport English language and customs and religion with them to America. But we have been much less concerned with those who never made the crossings to the new world and instead played their part in colonization without ever leaving the shores of the British Isles. For the remainder of this paper, I will take up some of these issues that I've mentioned in turn, including the role of women, some of these exchanges between England and America, and also how colonization intersected with broader concerns um, in society at home. These are some of the major themes which run throughout the book. And my hope today is to give you a little bit of a taste um, of some of the individuals and stories which populate its pages too. How people were persuaded to support colonisation is a key question that runs throughout my book. So in the first chapter, I examine the issue. I examine this issue through the lens of networks of letter writers and the print culture. So the pamphlets that were published, which told people about colonisation in America, but also through the exchange of material samples. So goods like tobacco, sassafras and corn, which colonists carefully placed inside their correspondence and sent home or which travelled in the pockets of returning settlers. In the first few decades of colonisation in Virginia, as many of you will know, public support did wax and wane. And this forced colonists to continually drive a widespread PR campaign, if you like. Um, this involved, like I said, things like the distribution of printed literature and pamphlets, as well as the delivery of sermons in church, the collection of charitable donations and lotteries um, and also the circulation of images as well, like John White's images here, um, which he produced during his time in Roanoke at the end of the 16th century. The point of all this was to try and counteract the uncertainty um, of investors who were beginning to think that colonisation in Virginia was a hopeless enterprise. There was a lot of scrutiny of the Virginia company and its policies and also scepticism about some of the reports and accounts which made their way back to England. So the sharing of goods, sending home samples of tobacco was a way to try and counteract this. And colonists did this to try and regain the confidence of other investors, providing them with examples of the kind of natural riches of Virginia. But it was also a way to try and entice new investment in the colonial project as well. One of the individuals who engaged in this kind of practice was the publisher and letter writer, Samuel Macham. So he was located in St. Paul's at the sign of the bullhead where he kept a shop selling different texts and pamphlets, including those that were concerned with colonization in America. And Maitram's role was to keep his patron, Sir Henry Hastings, the Earl of Huntingdon, abreast of the latest news and goings on in Virginia. And the reason for this is that Hastings was himself quite a prominent investor in the Virginia company. So he wanted to know what was happening and essentially whether or not he would see any return on his investment. So Maitram supplied Hastings with the latest news, copies of print. And in one of his letters to the Earl, he had enclosed the relation of the Lord Delaware, which was published in 1611. And he reported that within two days after the publishing of this, one Captain Adams returned with a fair ship from Virginia bringing word that Sir Thomas Dale, with all of his company, had arrived safely. So these networks through which people like Machen were supplying their investors with the kind of latest tidings from Virginia, which presumably he'd heard either at his shop in London or by going down to the the riverside of the Thames, where ships were returning as well. It wasn't just news, though, that Machen brought from the ship. He also carried with him some samples of corn, and he enclosed this in his letter to Hastings, writing that he had a little of every sort. I think that Machem had probably acquired these samples of corn from Captain Adams, who he said hath brought great store of black walnut tree as well, sassafras, soap ashes, and excellent sturgeon. And the samples of corn, it seems, did serve to bolster the reliability of these reports, which were coming back from the colony. And Maitre promised that if Hastings needed any further knowledge of Virginia's plants and its commodities, its natural riches, that he would be pleased to inform him and also um, send with him um, along with the letter that he he sent to um, to Hastings, he said that the bearer of the letter, a man who had been long in London, would also be able to um, report as well on some of the latest news from Virginia. Samples like these from America were evidence of the potential riches of the continent, but they also functioned as gifts within these networks of clients and patrons and investors in the company the Earl received specimens directly from the colony, not just from Machem, but also from his agent in Virginia, a man named Captain Nicholas Martial. When a letter arrived in April 1624, it contained within it a prick of tobacco and great quantities of sassafras. In 1625, Martial also delivered to the Earl um more sassafras as well as a small token of tobacco which he said was for the earl's wife he wanted to present it to his noble lady so it wasn't just investors who were being charmed with these gifts and delights from america but their wives as well and i think it really says something about how people in virginia were trying to entice their noble patrons at home men as well as women to continue their support in the colonial project. As well as these specimens from America, people in England demanded the company of those who had experience of the new world firsthand. It was common, as Maitram's letter suggests, for the bearers of letter to relate news directly to the recipients including individuals of more humble social status so when captain martiao in virginia um, sorry writing to captain martiao in virginia um, the earl of hastings noted that the bearer of this letter your servant richard jones um, was kind enough to come to me and deliver the tokens safely And he said that Jones had made a very good relation of the country and I think is an honest poor fellow. So the people who carried these letters back were also relied upon to give these very honest accounts of how colonization was unfolding in Virginia. Responding to another letter sent by the Earl in July 1624, Martial wrote that news we we have not in virginia that may merit any relation but he did however promise to report myself unto this messenger his servant a man named william hutchinson who could he said provide a more particular relation of how the earl's plantation um, was unfolding in virginia so studying these examples provides a greater sense of the unofficial exchange, if you like, between the colony and those at home. And it also broadens out our understanding of the people who were involved in the continued sustainability of the colonial project. It was not just investors in England and their agents in Virginia who oversaw their plantations, but also the ordinary people who carried the letters and delivered this news, those who were traveling to and from Virginia and England who kept their clients and patrons informed of the latest goings on in the colony and helped to ensure their continued investment. And one of the interesting things for me was that when I was kind of going through some of this correspondence, it was not just male servants, but sometimes the wives of patrons who might inform other women of the latest news from Virginia as well. So women were very much active in these kind of networks of of kind of news and information um, that were being exchanged um, between investors and colonists. And one of the things that I did try to do with my book was really shine a light on the women who were involved in the Virginia Company and in colonization in Virginia. So as I said earlier, when the Virginia Company received its second charter in 1609, this greatly expanded its membership. And for the first time, this included women investors. So Catherine West, later Lady Conway, who I already mentioned, and another woman with a merchant background named Millicent Ramsden. But more broadly in English society at this time, women were benefiting from colonization in Virginia, not just as investors, but as entrepreneurs and obviously as independent plantation owners themselves as well, and also through transatlantic trade. So especially the tobacco trade. And I found that focusing on women can be very helpful if we want to understand some of the more intimate dimensions associated with with individuals' decision making when it came to investing in the Virginia company. So the ways in which marriage or family connections, for example, influenced their thinking. Focusing on investment of women also allows us to view some of the networks that elite investors operated in, including at court, and look at these networks through a different lens. It was women's relationships and their patronage which also determined where these very important nodes of influence were within the court and within the company and how this influence was put into effect. Elite women's investment in the Virginia company did follow a different pattern to that of men prompting a different set of behaviours. So unlike men, women were sometimes forced to invest through more informal, even hidden channels because of contemporary legal and social constraints around what they could do with their money. And this means that sometimes it's very difficult to determine whether women were willingly um, and with their consent investing in the Virginia Company or whether their wealth was being exhausted without their consent through colonization. So if we take Cicely West, um, who married Thomas West and the third Baron Delaware, for example, um, she's someone who we can kind of understand a bit more about what some of these kind of hidden channels were of, of how women's money was invested in colonization in Virginia. So Thomas West, of course, was one of the largest investors in the company and a governor of the colony too. When he died in 1618, his son Henry inherited his title and shares in the company, but his mother Cecily managed these on his behalf during his minority, so until he reached um, maturity at the age of 21. During this period that she's managing his shares in the company, she appears frequently in the Virginia Company's records, selling shares, but also um, involved in the business of managing their plantations in Virginia. She was an active shareholder, but her contribution to colonisation was apparently much longer standing. So around 1635, almost 30 years since the colonisation of Jamestown, Cecily West petitioned the then King Charles I, asking for the continuation of a pension, of 500 pounds per annum, which per year, sorry, um, which she said had been bestowed on her by Charles's father, James, um, for a period of 31 years. In her petition to Charles, she explained that she had seven children to provide for. And she also said, very interestingly, that her own marriage portion, so the money which she brought to her marriage with Thomas West had been used by her husband to invest in plantation in Virginia. And this kind of seems to add up because Cecily and Thomas had married in 1596, around 10 years before he joined the Virginia Company Council and invested £500 in the company, which, is, which was the, the largest sum that it received from any shareholder. So it was Cecily's claim that some of that money had come from, from her own marriage portion. And of course, it's only because of this petition that we learn about the contribution that she made financially to the company because often women's investment is just written out of the company's records and the company's history because of the legal constraints which women faced this has created silences when it comes to understanding the role that they had in colonization in some instances it has been possible to reconstruct more clearly the associations that they had with the company revealing how women's networks um, and how their investment um, prompted shareholding in a very direct way. In 1622, for example, Lady Isabella Rich and her husband, Sir Henry Rich, sold four shares in the company to a man named Mr Henry Percy. And these were shares that Isabella claimed had descended to her as the sole daughter and heir of Sir Walter Cope. He was an early and very prominent investor in the company. There were other elite women who invested in the company, too. Um, so Elizabeth Gray, for example, um, who is here in the middle. And one of the things that I wanted to do in, in the book was kind of unpack who these women were, what networks they had and how that might allow us to understand different kinds of investment in the Virginia company. This family tree here of the Cavendish Talbot women um, shows how three of nine elite women investors who bought shares in 1612 were all connected and how their connections prompted further investment in Virginia. So Lady Elizabeth Grey, who's highlighted there in purple, was the wife of Henry Grey, later the Earl of Kent. And Elizabeth invested £25 in the company in 1612, but she was associated through her sister Mary, the Countess of Pembroke, with several colonial investors, names that you might recognise. The Countess of Pembroke also invested in 1612 alongside her sister, but so did her husband, um, William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke, and also her brother-in-law, Philip Herbert, the Earl of Montgomery. They both invested in 1609. The Countess of Pembroke's mother-in-law, Mary Herbert, was another investor in the Virginia Company, and she was the mother of Sir Philip Sidney, who was an early promoter of colonization in Virginia too. The mother of Elizabeth and Mary, Mary Talbot, was also an investor in the company. She invested 50 pounds in 1612. And she also had important familial connections to other elite company investors. She was the, the sister of William Cavendish and the aunt of his son, also William Cavendish, who were both very active in the kind of inner circle of the Virginia Company. So what I wanted to do with this family tree, and by kind of breaking down some of these relationships between these elite female investors, was show how these elite women who invested in the company were not just doing it randomly, they were themselves connected to some of, you know, the very kind of noble um, influence in the company itself you know that went right to the heart of the court these were women who were um, closely associated with queen anna of denmark who herself was um a very loyal patron of the virginia company someone who really promoted colonization in the virginia company and we can see how these women were not just necessarily following their husbands and brothers when they invested in the Virginia company but sometimes they were doing it first and actually it was their male relations who who were following them. so it's a way of kind of looking at this influence in the company a little bit differently. And it also made me think about how this interest in colonization kind of descended through generations of women as well from mother to daughter um and for, you know between sisters. I think it's important to note that as well as playing a practical role um, as investors in the company, the contribution of elite women like Mary Tolbert and her daughters Elizabeth and Mary was also important in terms of lending an air of respectability to the colonial project. Um, And in that sense, they really helped to advance its aims. Of course, um, elite noble men kind of brought their own know political um and social capital to the company but so did women um in terms of making it seem more legitimate um, and honorable and, and kind of really helping to entice others to invest in the company as well but there's a large chunk of my book which is interesting thinking not just about elite women but also how women from more humble backgrounds so women from merchant backgrounds and gentry backgrounds were involved in trade and plantation in Virginia as well and I do this by drawing on evidence from different court cases but also the Virginia company's own records it's company minutes. The company records alone do not offer us a full picture of how women were involved in colonisation in Virginia. But there are archival fragments, so little snippets, which tell us a little bit about how women were involved in the tobacco trade, how they were involved in supplying silkworms to fellow planters, but also the occasions when they did attend company meetings as well, sometimes to petition for shares in the company, which they Had inherited from a deceased son or husband for example and i think what it shows is that in this you know for this kind of first generation of investors in the company women were involved and they were also willing to take risks as well because of course this was a very risky venture for them at this time there was no real guarantee that they would ever see any return on this investment I also kind of explore how some women from more humble backgrounds um, encountered the colonization project and how they became involved in it. So when West Country um, colonists behind the Barclay Hundred plantation were preparing for their departure in 1619, they made many payments to local people, which allow us to see how ordinary women were also involved in advancing the Virginia venture. So a woman named Elizabeth Hibbert, who lived in Gatscombe in Gloucestershire, received payment of 15 shillings for providing um, lodging and food to the colonists before they departed aboard their ships. And a couple of years later, a company agent, a man named Roger King, recorded his expenses during an expedition um, in Sussex, which is the county where I now live in the southeast of England, to hire men for the colony's ironworks. So he was traveling from village to village looking for craftsmen, um, men who were smiths and colliers, finers, carpenters and founders, um, who he wanted to kind of hire to to come and um, sort of migrate to Virginia and, and help establish an ironworks there. But through Roger King's records, we see that what he was involved in essentially was ensuring that the families of these men who were left behind were compensated. And unsurprisingly, almost all of the recipients of this financial help from the company were women. And this really speaks to the kinds of connections that people left at home when they when they migrated to Virginia, connections that we often, we don't see, we don't hear about. So for example, Roger King paid 10 pounds to um, the mother of his finer that he hired. A carpenter's wife received 10 shillings. And he also paid two pounds in order to bind out um, the daughter um, of one of the men as an apprentice. So ensuring that she would have a future and some stability after her father voyaged to Virginia. And of course it's unlikely that he ever um, returned. And King's activities um, kind of lead us to, I guess, the the third key theme um, in the book that I just want to kind of briefly um, touch on with you, which is the ways that colonization in Virginia connected with broader concerns about society at this time. Um, So concerns around overpopulation, underemployment, vagrancy, And probably some of you are familiar with stories of indentured servants who were um, imprisoned in places like Bridewell, which you can see here, and and forced to migrate. And, you know, there was, again, a lot of support for this, not just from statesmen and politicians. Um, but also from kind of ordinary supporters of colonization as well so the the image that you see there is taken from a text which was published by a man named michael spark and it was titled the poor orphan's cry um, a text which really spoke about the plight of poor vagrant children within the city of london who he believed should be taken up by the virginia company sent to the colonies apprenticed and given a trade and this was he said you know a a key way that actually English people could really deal with some of the problems that he saw in society you know that were there for everyone to see right on their own doorsteps but interestingly Michael Spark was not just a printer and a publisher and he was also the brother of um, a merchant who himself was involved in colonization in Virginia Um, so people had these kind of webs of connection which were influencing the way that they thought about these issues as well. And the fifth chapter in my book is really dedicated um, to this issue around forced indenture, especially of indentured children um, who um, were forced to migrate to Virginia, but also um, kind of policies and projects which were um, initiated in order to try and encourage poor families Um, to migrate to the colonies. And what I think is interesting, and and again, something that we haven't maybe generally explored so much in relation to the history of the colony is that what the Virginia Company did in these early years, although we've often looked at its early history as being quite disastrous um, for many different reasons, some of the policies that the company did um, manage to initiate around things like indentured servitude and the apprenticeship of poor children did actually go on to influence um, and encourage other colonial projectors so the new england company in their council minutes do talk about also apprenticing um, poor children taking up these children from the streets of london and giving them a trade and, and kind of sending them to the colonies obviously is a direct influence of, of what they had seen the Virginia Company do and how effective it had been. And I guess for me, one of the benefits of, of looking at this history from the vantage point of England is to understand that colonisation really did require the buy in and support of a huge number of people across English society. So it wasn't just the likes of Walter Raleigh and and Thomas Dale and the other investors in the company who made colonisation in Virginia possible. But it was also the church wardens in local parish churches who signed off on their poor parishioners being indentured and sent to plantations. It was the governors of places like the Bridewell House of Correction who agreed to merchants coming to Um, the prison and taking up petty criminals and also um, forcing them into contracts and bringing them to the colony as well in order to meet the the labour requirements of planters. But ordinary people in England also had a huge part to play um, as people who gave money to the company lotteries, as people who provided donations within their parish churches, but also as people who did the very kind of ordinary everyday tasks that sometimes we don't remember now, like supplying the ships with the goods that they would need and providing the lodging for would-be colonists in the days and you know hours leading up to their departures. And, you know, I haven't obviously touched on everything that the book is concerned with, but I, I guess I just want to kind of end by saying that um, for me, one of the reasons that this project has been really important is because in England I think we, we don't think about um our colonial history in America enough so it wasn't actually until my third year of university that I even encountered um Virginia history and, and the colonization of Jamestown although I'd learned much about Tudor history and Stuart history before then but often this history is is you know treated very distinctly you know it's seen as being American history it's not seen as being part of British history and how we should understand our past in the 16th and 17th centuries but also some of the legacies that we are still living with and grappling with today you know around issues about you know kind of colonial legacies and and inequalities and more globally and obviously my book you know cannot solve all these issues but one of the things I hope to do is make people in Britain a bit more aware of this early Virginian history, but hopefully to people in the US and even more locally in Virginia, um, provide a different perspective on this early history as well from the vantage point of England. Um, and I'm conscious that I've gone a little bit over so I'll I'll end there and I really look forward to your questions and, and comments.
0: Thanks Misha. We do have a few minutes uh, for questions. So if you've got a question, uh, please be sure to log in Facebook or YouTube and submit your comment there. Um, so one question that has come up, uh, how did colonism influence or frustrate religious practices and beliefs at the time? Did the philanthropy offset or help uh, colonism at that time?
1: yeah so um the way that i primarily engaged with the kind of influence that religion had on this practice was through the lens of the local parish church and of course there were people in the virginia company who had you know strongly held religious beliefs both catholics but also very staunch militant protestants as well who understood colonization as a way to you know expand you know, a Protestant kind of community um, in America as a way to kind of counter Spanish Catholic influence. But I think at the parish level, sort of in a local level, I think actually the aims of the Virginia Company almost kind of cut through these religious divisions in a way. Um, And the kind of rhetoric that people, um, you know, kind of delivered in their sermons and, and kind of that ordinary people encountered was much more about, you know, more broadly, this idea of an expansion of a Christian Commonwealth um, and how everyone could be part of that. So a way that people were kind of made to feel that they could participate, that they could have a stake in this and they were encouraged to invest. So. When people would go to church on a sunday and the alms dish was passed around for collections at that moment they were also encouraged to kind of you know contribute towards colonization as well and i found an interesting record where um the alms dish that was actually used was described as an indian dish um and one of the vestrymen of the church was sir thomas smith the treasurer of the company at the time so for me it was really intriguing how these kind of objects from virginia you know this so called kind of indian dish was actually being used to kind of make that very kind of direct engagement with people and encourage them to kind of put their hands into their pockets um so it's not that religion wasn't important you know texts were very heavily inflected with you know this idea of kind of providentialism so that you know it's kind of our duty and and it's sort of destined that england will you know um establish colonies in the new world but i think that sometimes for kind of everyday people it wasn't necessarily so large a concern and it was much more about how their contributions could help to kind of resolve some of the issues at home, you know, and and be being kind of charitable, good citizens, essentially. Um, I hope that helps.
0: So one of the first images that you showed in your presentation uh, was of Indigenous peoples. And I'm curious, as folks are coming back to England uh, with tobacco and sassafras and corn and other things what what are they saying about these these folks that they're encountering what what's the you know sort of the spectrum of of viewpoints about that
1: yeah so in that same chapter where i talk about some of these kind of material goods which are being sent home i also think a bit about some of the indigenous travelers who also um wind up in England during this period as well both as kind of willing travelers as you know emissaries but also as captives as well Um, and I think about how their presence in England within gentry households so you know within Walter Raleigh's household and Walter Cope as well here I mentioned how their kind of presence is being used to garner know further interest in the colonial project essentially and particularly when um pocahontas who had then been christened um rebecca rolfe travels to england in 1616 and you know she's brought to court um with her now husband john rolfe you know her presence is, is 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 very much used to kind of show you know the supposed success of colonization um in terms of the conversion of indigenous people so I think actually it's a very, um you know, it, it's it's kind of a tactic and strategy that the company are very conscious of in a way of, of kind of using indigenous presence in London at this time to try and garner further interest in colonisation. I think what's interesting perhaps is you know with things like goods like tobacco is that in texts in theatre at this time we do see that people are are very much making these connections between these goods that they're consuming and their indigenous origins you know understanding that um, colonists know how to cultivate these plants because of indigenous knowledge that these plants have different meanings in indigenous cultures but I look at the ways that then these plants are also removed from their indigenous context the ways that tobacco is domesticated um, in places like Gloucestershire, where English people start to grow their own tobacco and very quickly forget that this is an American Indigenous crop and start to see it as something very English. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a kind of interesting process, I guess, which has taken place in, in the early 17th century where America and, and a, different aspects of Indigenous history and and this colonial history very much and very quickly becomes part of the fabric of English society and I think this is a part of our history that we we haven't fully kind of grappled with and begun to entangle in the same way that people in the US have and the way that you have this kind of understanding of, of this kind of closeness between you know the kind of um, I guess British culture and, and cultures from all around the world but also you know the Indigenous kind of you know, origins of your of your country and your nation that I, I think we just haven't really begun to think about in the UK. And um, I think that's, it's interesting. We, we have a blind spot there. Um, and I guess one way that I kind of try to untangle that a bit in the book is, is, is through tobacco.
0: You also mentioned in the beginning of the talk, how you're surprised at the level of participation of, of women that mm. they don't normally get uh, this much attention in, in, in the story. What, what else was, was a surprise in the course of your research?
1: Hmm. I guess one thing that perhaps I wasn't anticipating was the um, the, the geographic reach of, of, of interest in colonization. So again, we are, I guess, quite familiar with Gloucestershire um, colonists and kind of West Country influence. Um, you know, the kind of merchant elite within the City of London, but also kind of, um, you know, how that trickles out to surrounding counties like Kent as well. But when I was researching in some of these local archives in places as far flung as Cornwall and Manchester in the Northwest, I also found that the Virginia Company was was reaching out to people there in order to try and, um, you know, gather up these donations. Um, Their lotteries travelled to these towns and cities, um, and people from these places were also migrating to Virginia as well in those first, you know, two decades of colonisation. So I think it was, I guess, trying to kind of look at this history through a different lens, not just in terms of from the English perspective, but also kind of broadening out from kind of, yeah, the southwest and London to think about, you know, how were these issues kind of trickling out to I guess, provincial England at this time, um, you know, I found that in places like York um, and Darlington, so in kind of northeast of England, pamphlets um, about Virginia were also kind of making their way to markets up there and people were reading them, engaging with them. So I guess it was that there was not only a broader sort of public of people who were involved in colonization, so ordinary men and women, but also that the locations, you know, where these people were was was much more widespread than perhaps um, we previously thought as well.
0: So this is this is your first book. Uh, what's what's next for you? <laughs>
1: So um, my project now is examining the role of women in colonisation in Barbados, but I'm doing it from a similar perspective. So I'm interested in the role of women in the colony itself, but also the women who are in England. Um, So women who were absentee slave owners in particular. Um, So I'm focusing on slightly later period, the late 17th and early 18th centuries. But again, um, I want to try and grapple with how we understand this history um in a contemporary context um you know I, I i think again it's it's something that we tend to think of slavery and empire as happening over there and instead i want to think about how it was very much a part of english and british society at this time and how women were themselves very um actively involved in colonization and Caribbean slavery and how they also help to bring these things home to England as well.
0: And will this be another book?
1: Yeah. So I I hope so. I mean, at the moment I'm working on an article, which I hope to finish um, over the summer. Um, But I'm I'm thinking a a second book, which probably more broadly, interested in the role of women in colonisation um, in Barbados, but also perhaps in, in North America. And I've, I've worked in the role of women in Newfoundland as well. So I'd like to try and you know join up these different places um, and, and think about how women are kind of navigating these different colonial spaces and the influence that that's having on English society at this time.
0: We've got time for one more quick question. Uh, how did the conditions brought about the English civil wars after colonization.
1: Mm. So this is something that I've been thinking about a bit more um, with my new project on Barbados, but I think it certainly applies to Virginia as well. Um, But obviously the civil war brings about huge political and social changes in England, but also really um, tears apart families sometimes and, you know, alliances between um, you know, neighbours and friends. Um, and one of the things that I've looked at is how people try to maintain their um, investments um, in col- in colonies, and also hold on to their property. You know their estates in colonies um, during the kind of tumultuous years of the civil wars, when sometimes you know they had their estates removed from them. And I think one of the things that really comes about after the civil war um, and is much more common in the later 17th century is that families try to ensure their continued um, sort of security in a way by, um, you know, being a bit more dispersed. So you might have a son in Boston and a daughter in Barbados, and they are kind of managing their various plantations. They're operating, um, you know, out of ports in, in different areas of business. So I think it's the way that families become much more transatlantic and much more scattered, the way that people start to Um, really expand their interest and I think it's in this period after the civil war that we can start to see the Atlantic world as being much more connected Um, you know people in Virginia are connected um, with other colonies and again it's I I think with the early history we we tend to kind of think of Jamestown in quite an isolated way Um, whereas in fact people that were Migrating to Jamestown might have had family members who were going to Newfoundland or Barbados as well, um, but I think it becomes a strategy um, in the decades following the Civil War because the Civil War has really shaken the, the kind of economic and political and kind of social foundations of, of British society. It makes sense um, to, yeah, have kin in different places. Essentially, we can we can see those networks um, through marriage. Um, but also through the people's different business associations as
0: well. Well, Misha, you and thank you so much again uh, for taking time. It's, uh, I guess it's the cocktail hour there uh, <laughs> uh, for a wonderful talk today. Uh, and thank you all for tuning in virtually via YouTube and Facebook. and. Uh, we hope that we'll uh, see you all in person at the next lecture at the VMHC. So, thank you all again and have a great afternoon.
1: Thank you.